Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 202. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 202 you're listening to. My guest today is Eric Serafin, who is, of course, known as Mixer Man. He's a producer, mixer, and recordist with many multiple gold and platinum sales awards to his name. Spent about 25 years operating out of Los Angeles, and he currently resides in Asheville, North Carolina, where he continues to produce and mix acts from around the world. He, of course, has worked with The Far Side, Tone Loke, Spearhead, uh, The Brand New Heavies, Ben Harper, Amy Grant, Lifehouse, Bare Naked Ladies, Hillary Duff, Foreigner, and uh, that's just to name a few. So many of you might remember him as Mixer Man when he gained notoriety as, uh, of course, reporting from the front lines of a mythical recording session. Of course, at the time, we all thought it was real, and it was a satire of a major label recording session. This was, uh, of course, in the early aughts, and this made the rounds, and that's how he came on my radar. He's also written five books, including Zen and the Art of Mixing, which I own a copy and have read and is quite good. I read it uh, many years ago. We talk about that in the interview. And he's also gone on to uh, do Zen and the Art of Producing, Zen and the Art of Recording, followed by another music business satire, Mixer Man and the Billionaire Apparent. His latest book is called Musician's Survival Guide to a Killer Record, and it's written specifically to help today's musician get the engineering out of the way so that they can focus on what's important, the music itself. So Eric Serafin, or Mixer Man, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, grab your coffees and sit back. I'm going to ramble. I did say coffees, plural. That's right because you got to have more than one cup, right? So I was talking with one of my older brothers this past week, and we were discussing the uh, quandary where you never know where opportunities are going to lead and the decisions you make about those opportunities. In other words, let's put it in the context of all of us and what we do in audio. All right, so let's say uh, you get a famous guitar player or singer that everybody knows about and they need an, like their own personal recording engineer. You could take on that job and be, you know, whatever, that person's guy or gal, and, you know, basically be available to record their stuff whenever. Now that's great, and that's nice to tie to a resume, I guess. Nothing against that. But it does kind of hamstring you a little bit because you can't then go off and do other things very easily because, you know, you're very tied to that one person. You have to make the decision for yourself. Is that going to work for you long term? Now, maybe you're only going to do this for a couple of years and then you're going to move on. But, you know, some people get complacent and they don't want to let go of that safety of staying with that artist, that security blanket, we'll call it. And once again, I don't mean this in any derogatory fashion. It's just it's up to you. You need to figure it out. Because there are those of us that would much rather have the freedom to move and be be nimble, you know? Do I want to start a studio this week? Do I want to go and be a location sound person? Oh, here's a video game opportunity I want to try. Or, you know, oh, I have a passion for books on tape. If you're tied to one person, you can't necessarily do that as easily. So it's something to consider. Then again, maybe you don't like the unpredictability of you know, the other thing, the other side of that. So maybe finding that one person to stick with is an opportunity for you. So it depends on how you look at it. Think about that. And you know what, whatever you end up doing, you know, it goes without saying, you want to do it to the best of your ability. So be prepared. And maybe if there is a person that you want to work for, maybe you find that person and maybe make a list of others who are in that area that you want to work for. Then again, the other side of that, as I was saying earlier, is maybe there are different things you want to try. Studio ownership, location sound, voiceovers, whatever. Make a list of the things you want to do and figure it out. Figure out what works for you. And I think that that is uh, the wise thing to do. You can be influenced by 
all the different factors out there, but it's ultimately up to you. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get into it. Eric Serafin also known as Mixer Man, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Eric, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. I, I can't say I'm, I've been a follower per se, but I've been a, a, uh, a fan coming in and out of the world of Mixer Man when I, <laughs> when I see some entertaining things. And obviously the chronicles of Mixer Man is what puts you on my radar, as well as many people's radar who didn't know your audio work per se. So it's great to have you on and, and I want to get into some of the things that you've written. But before we do that, I want to go back in time to figure out a couple things about you that I don't know. For example, where did you grow up? I'm a Jersey boy. Ah. My first 18 years were spent in Heightstown, New Jersey, which is exit eight on the New Jersey Turnpike for all you exit jokers out there. <laughs> About an hour from New York, an hour from Philadelphia. So it was right smack in the middle of the two mar media markets, which is an interesting place to live. At what point did audio enter into this Jersey Boys world? I knew that I wanted to go into music in high school when the Berkeley rep came, came into our band class and asked who wanted a career in music. And I was 17 and I'm like, well, shit, I'd like a career in music. So I went and heard his pitch. I wanted to go to Berkeley. My mom wanted me to go to Rutgers University. I don't really blame her for that advice, and I took her advice on that because there was a guy there by the name of Kenny Barron, who's a uh, superstar jazz, straight-ahead jazz pianist of the Bud Powell mold. His band for years was called Sphere, and so I had an opportunity to study with him for a year, and I pretty much learned that I wasn't going to be a jazz pianist from that year at Rutgers 
after the first semester, I decided, you know what, I really do want to go to Berkeley. And so I ended up going to Berkeley the next year, moved up to Massachusetts, went to Berkeley for two or three years, found a gig at a studio there in Jamaica Plain, which is a suburb of Boston. And it was called Dimension Sound Studios. And George Thorogood had recorded his gold albums there, Bad to the Bone, among others. And it was basically a studio that you know, it was designed with a really dead room, like there was no action to the room, which was really a, a kind of a 70s design. And by the mid-80s, when I was in there, everybody wanted the more reflective designs with wood. And so it wasn't a super busy studio. And as a consequence, I had an opportunity to live above it <laughs> and pretty much record anybody I wanted anytime I wanted. I had a little direction because the place was a bit of a kludge, the way it was designed. The, the owner was an electrical engineer, and he was eclectic, to say the least. <laughs> and uh, so the, they had a J, uh, JH24 in there, a 24-track machine. and um, But you literally had to flick. The electronics were built by him, and so it wasn't actually easy to go from record ready into record. You had to flick two things and hit record at the same time. And it took a little practice. And I got pretty good at it. And, you know, by the time I got in L.A., I, I really appreciated the remotes that come with the uh, 24-track machines. This guy built a remote? He built the electronics. Okay. There was no remote. I um. literally had to go buy the machine, flick it into record and ready, and hit the record button at the same time on the machine. Huh. <laughs> it, was, it was ridiculous. I don't even know how we did it, but we did. We did it all the time. I got pretty good at it, too. What I'm missing there is the, is the leaving Rutgers and going to Berkeley, and why audio? Well, I was living in an apartment with my buddy, and I had my Apple II Plus computer with uh, 64 kilobytes of RAM, and I had MIDI, and I had a bunch of keyboards, an Insonic, a Juno 106, what else, a DX7, I believe. I was writing songs, but I was so limited with just MIDI. And I, I kind of turned to my buddy and I'm like, man, I really need to get into a studio. So uh, how am I going to record my songs if I'm not in a studio? So I went and I visited my buddy who, who was a uh, sales rep at uh, Daddy's Music on um, Mass Ave, which was basically the independent guitar center style place there. And um, he's like, yeah, I know this guy. I know this guy, he's like living above this studio. It's a really good studio. And he's looking for someone to, to bring in, to, to work with him. And so I met with the guy and I ended up moving in there above the studio, like a few months later and started working with him. And that he was, he was kind of an idiot though. So that didn't really work out very well <laughs> for him. <laughs> and, and like the studio owner loved me and wanted me and the chief engineer loved me. And so they were, they took me under their wing and they were teaching me. And then the other guy ended up leaving. And basically I had free reign of the place to, to record my songs. And while I was recording my songs, I'm like, well, I'm going to Berkeley. I know all these bands. I might as well practice recording yeah. on some of them. And so I'd bring in them and sometimes I'd charge a little bit of money and sometimes I wouldn't. The owner didn't really care. And so I had this opportunity, this incredible opportunity, really, to cut my chops in this professional recording studio with no pressure. No pressure to bring clients in, no pressure to, you know, to sell time, no pressure to do great work. Because <laughs> when you're not charging anyone, they don't complain too, too hard. <laughs> And I just kept practicing and, oh man, it was so, I was so bad. It was so terrible. It was so frustrating to try and, and get good at recording, but I was determined. And I'm like, you know what, if I can write a song that I think is, is really good, then there's no reason why I can't record a song that's really good too. But there is a reason. And the reason is it takes a long time to learn how to do that. But I, I was tenacious and I kept practicing and I kept learning and took me about three or four years and before like what I was doing was starting to sound as good as, as commercial CDs, or at least what I felt. And I'm like, you know what? I should go to LA. <laughs> <laughs> so like an event happened, I broke up with a girlfriend and whatever, all the, the planets aligned and it was time for me to leave Boston. And I decided I was going to move to LA and that's exactly what I did. I packed up my Honda CRX. I had $1,600 to my name, which was nowhere near enough money. 
I had all of my keyboards. My car was filled with keyboards and sound equipment and PA and stuff. And basically, I sold all of that equipment in my first six months there just to live. And then I got a gig at Capitol Studios. No shit. Yeah. <laughs> Through another engineer who, Peter Dell, who's a mastering engineer now, Peter worked at Dimension Sound years before me but and had done the same thing, moved to LA. So he helped me get a gig there. And Michael Frondelli hired me and Paula Salvatore. And my first gig in Los Angeles was doing the setup for large orchestral uh, recordings for rock bands and whatever came in, really. And basically, it was a glorified runner position. I'm not going to lie. But the thing is, I really did have to set up for uh, uh, an orchestral session, like, at least twice a week. And you learn a lot when you start doing that sort of thing. I'm really glad I had that experience, because if I didn't, I, I'm not sure I wouldn't even know how to record a group of violinists or, or an orchestra. Not that, it, not that it matters. Did you have any guidance as you were doing that? Did people come in and go, no, 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 you don't put the chairs or the mic stand there. Do it like this. Oh, it was two standards. I mean, I, I, had, I was given a, a chart. The seating chart had to be exact. There had to be a, a, a stand, a light on every stand. So I had to run all the AC for all the lights on all the stands. There had to be a pen on every stand. For every microphone stand, there had to be two headphone inputs or boxes. Most of the string players carried their own headphones, so we didn't have to put those out. Basically, I would set up a microphone for every two players, uh, two spec, according to whoever the, the engineer was. It would usually amount to 30 to 40 microphones. A and B and, and, and Capitol Studios open up, so sometimes A could hold, with, could hold a 60-person orchestra, but if we opened up the wall between A and B, we could get probably a 90-person orchestra in there. And so that's what I did. I set these big sessions up, and I learned exactly how you do it. How did you get in the door at Capitol with Peter? Well, the owner, Dave Hill, of Dimension Sound Studios had taken me a couple of times to Los Angeles, and I had met Peter, and so he kind of took me under his wing a little bit and, and helped me out. I mean, I, I, it really was just a little bit. Uh, his, his, basically, after I got the gig, Peter said, all right, well, I got your foot in the door. It's up to you now. <laughs> <laughs> I got fired six months later. Oh, why'd you get yeah. fired? I was not the kind of person that does well in corporate jobs. And um, I was not really in the mood to spend three, four, five years slowly making my way up the ladder to become a staff engineer at Capitol Studios. Yeah. So for me, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And they kind of figured that out pretty quickly. And so they rightfully let me go. And as traumatic an event as that was, it was the best thing that could have possibly happened. And a few months later, I, I, I got my next gig, which was at Hollywood Sound. It was a two-room facility. They had an 8068 in A and a knee VR in, in B. And there were good-sounding rooms. And, oh, they had C. They had an API in C. I forgot about that. And within six months, I was recording The Far Side's first album. Hmm. <laughs> Because no one in that studio wanted to engineer hip-hop for some reason. It was all, it was like, all the staff engineers were rockers. And, and you know, Rick Rubin recorded in this studio all the time. And Sylvia Massey and Brennan O'Brien and George Draculius. All those guys were going through there all the time. But so was Mike Ross of Delicious Vinyl. And he was bringing the far side there. And one day he was complaining about the studio where they were recording this stuff. They were mixing it there. It was an EP for the far side. And he was complaining about uh, this studio called, um, I'm not going to remember the name of the studio. It doesn't matter. They're not there anymore. And he's like, I'm like, well, how much are they charging? And he's like, $35 an hour. And so uh, Jesse, the owner of Hollywood Sound, had put in this production room upstairs. And since this was hip hop, the only thing we ever needed to record was vocals. Everything else was coming out of the drum machine. And so I'm like, dude, I've been recording for years. Let's I show him the room upstairs. I'm like, bring these guys in here. Jesse will charge you the same amount of money. You got someone who you can rely on. I've been doing this for a long time. And he's like, all right, let's do it. The next day, I'm recording the far side. Damn. Yeah. And so, of course, it's, they were nobody at that time. No, whatever. They were just this great group that I thought were awesome. So nobody knew who they were yet. And Jay Swift came in with his MPC, and we laid down the stuff into a DAW. This is in 1992. It was a Spectral Sonics DAW. The group was ready to record. 
And I had a U-47 up there, and Romai or Imani, one of them, is like, man, I want to hold the mic. I'm like, you want to <laughs> you want to hold the mic? I'm sure most people who listen to this probably know, but a U-47 is, is a large diaphragm condenser that's held by a cage. It's not meant to be held. It's meant to hang in front of you, <laughs> suspended, because it's very sensitive. So I'm like, oh, man, what am I going to do? I was like between a rock and a hard place. It's my first day. I got to do a good job or I'm not going to get the gig. But at the same time, I can't be telling them no, right? I, that's, you know, no, you can't do that. So I'm like, all right, okay. All right, well, hold the U-47. Thinking they're going to hear. They will hear it. They're going to hear all this sound and this noise of holding this, this microphone. No, nah, not at all. They come in. They listen to it. They're like, that's great. We love it. I'm like, oh, no, no. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> and so the next day comes around, and Michael comes in before the group, and he's like, dude, this isn't working out. I'm like, no, I'm telling you. And so I explained the situation, and I explained the position that I was in, and I'm like, Mike, listen, I would never let anybody hold a U-47, but I kind of had to let them do it, because if I don't do it, I'm not going to get their trust, and they're going to think that I'm just there for you and, and whatever. And he's like, oh, that makes sense. He's like, well, okay, go ahead and record them today without them holding the mics. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they came in, and he's like, no one holds the mic. You got it? Okay, okay. All right, so then we recorded them again, and then, you know, obviously was— Recordings were, were, were acceptable, and, and then for eight months, that was my life, recording The Far Side. <laughs> and that was the first album that I recorded in Los Angeles as an engineer. Before you got there, I, I wanted to ask you, what was your takeaway from, from Capital? What did you get out of that gig that you recall that's a, that's, that's a positive thing? Oh, a lot. That was the best gig I could have gotten when I first got to L.A. You know, part of the problem with being in Boston was I, I wasn't exposed to professionals recording. I was exposed to people that were professional recordists, but I didn't know whether they were any good or not. I didn't even really know if I was any good or not, you know? So when I went there, it, it, it just confirmed a lot of things. For instance, it confirmed what, that the microphones at Dimension Sound were actually really good microphones. I didn't know that for sure. The chief engineer told me they were. He told me they were coveted microphones, like an Elamp. They had a pair of Elamp 251s there. Yeah. They had all sorts of great mics there. And when I got to Capitol, then I see these mics and I see the, how the guys are using them and when people are using them. And it, it, it just confirms, you know, what is coveted and what isn't. That's actually something that's missing from a lot of people's lives these days. If you only record at home, how are you ever going to know what anybody else does yeah, and what other people like and why they like them. And we miss out on those conversations. I had those conversations because I was an assistant or I was a runner there. And so I could ask the, the engineers there questions after sessions and they would fill me in and I could watch and I could see how sessions were run aside from how I ran them. And so it brought, it brought a perspective that I had never gotten of how things worked in L.A. And it wasn't all that different, but I didn't know. And it's interesting you say that because I, while I do see the value in the mix with the masters and pure mix and all these video things that are out there, but it's a one-sided thing that has no interaction. You going to Capitol and being there, seeing on how records were made on a high level in a super professional environment, you get to be there and have those conversations and kind of be the low guy on the totem pole observing it all it's it's a different experience yeah for sure and that was probably the most valuable thing i i got out of capital it showed me how things were done on that level hollywood sound was not at the level of capital now big records were being done there it's just that it was uh, a rougher crowd you know it was the rock crowd they wanted uh, a place with some vibe a place that wasn't all clean and pretty and so hollywood sound was that and so records are made the way they're made there <laughs> Yeah. You know? Well, so how long did you uh, work at Hollywood? I did the Far Side album, and then I started mixing the Brand New Heavies album for Mike Ross. And sometime in there, I was still working for the studio, and they were still paying me even though I was mixing for Delicious Vinyl, which was a little, you know, I, I could have made a lot more money as a freelance mixer, but I wasn't really prepared to make that move or didn't know if I could or whatever. And then that decision was made for me. When I kind of was feeling my oats a little bit, and basically I told Vicky Giordano, who was the manager of the studio, that I wanted to get paid for 
two sessions one day because I was actually running two sessions, one upstairs and one downstairs. And she's like, I'm not paying you for two sessions. You get paid, you get paid an hourly rate. That's that. And so I demanded it. And then she demanded the key. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. And then the next day, Mike Ross called me and he's like, you're not working at Hollywood Sound anymore? I'm like, no. He's like, well, then I'll just hire you directly. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. So I'm like, all right. So I go to Hollywood Sound and I go and I'm like, hey, Vicky. And it was, I mean, maybe it was kind of awkward. I wasn't feeling too awkward, but she might have been. And, uh, and I'm good friends with Vicky. I have nothing bad to say. She's a great person. And this is just, you know, it's the natural course of things. And so I go in and there's no, I'm like, where's my assistant? I go out to Vicky. I'm like, hey, where's my assistant? She's like, you don't get an assistant. I'm like, why? I don't work here. <laughs> she's like, she's like, and then she calls in someone to be my assistant. And so I finished mixing the record at Hollywood Sound, and I was a freelance engineer from that point forward. Yeah. Never looked back. Didn't need another gig after that. The battle of trying to cross the bridge into freelance world and establish yourself. But that's good that you're still friends with her, so. Oh, yeah, whatever. That was, after that, she was fine with it. It was all cool. I, just, I was going there all the time. But she was really helpful, and she really gave me a job when I needed it and took a chance on me, and I'm really very appreciative of Vicky Giordano. So uh, freelancing and surviving, were you, were you surviving at that time, or were, was it a struggle? Was it a, a hustle day-to-day -to, -day to keep keep the rent paid? Oh, dude, I went from, I went from getting paid $10 an hour to... 35 or $40 an hour. So, no, things got easier. You know, the Farsight album was already doing really well, and I was already doing, getting calls for all sorts of albums, hip-hop albums, lots and lots of hip-hop albums. So I was working all the time anyway. The transition was forced and therefore easy. And I was married at the time, so uh, my wife had a, my now current ex-wife, but my wife at the time had a job, and so things were okay. We were doing okay. You came from Jersey. You cut your teeth in a studio in Boston. What did you think of Los Angeles? What, is it, what did you think of the West Coast? Was there a little bit of a culture shock? What did you think of that? The culture shock from moving from the East Coast to the West Coast in 1991 was remarkable. And that first year in Los Angeles was the, easily the toughest year in my lifetime. I've been fortunate. But that was a very, very tough time uh, in my life. And, and the culture shock was incredible because, you know, Los Angeles is, has an edge to it. There's, it. It's got an aggressiveness to it, but not like the aggressiveness of New Jersey, New York, and Boston. And so I had to learn how to tamp that down a little bit. It served me well, my aggressiveness, but I did have to adjust how I interacted and the funny thing is, I braced myself for the move. I'm sure we'll get to this, but I live in Asheville, North Carolina now. I moved here three years ago. I braced myself for the culture shock of that move just from the experience of the culture shock of moving to L.A. And I'm not going to say there was no culture shock, but it wasn't nearly as dramatic for me moving here in my late 40s as, as it was moving in my early 20s to Los Angeles. Were you intimidated at all in, in coming to these big studios like Capitol? Nah, I was fearless. <laughs> I totally knew that's what I wanted to do. I belonged there. I, I was a manifesting fool. I was not going to be denied. A little bit of that East Coast edge probably served you quite well. It does. It does. If you'll notice in Los Angeles that a lot of the people that do well are the people that come from the East Coast because they aren't afraid to basically aggressively ask for something. You know, I, I asked Mike Ross. I, I went to Mike I would have never gotten that Farside album if I didn't go to Mike Ross and say, hey, come here, work with me. You know, and there's a lot of people that aren't comfortable doing that. You got to do that. You got to sell yourself. Man, when any, anytime when I was doing hip hop records and anytime I had a room full of guys and that I didn't know who come in working on this project or that project, I'd be like, yeah, we're, I'd tell them all, every single person, what I've done, who I've worked with. It's obnoxious. It was horrible, but it got me a lot of work. Yeah. Because they'd be like, oh, really? Oh, cool. And then I'd get their number and we'd, uh, next thing you know, few months later they're doing an album because all the guys who are doing who are getting deals are friends with other guys who are trying to get deals so it's all this like very tight circle i, I see a similarity in this and i'll rope in a, a short story about my kids we always tell them 
You have to advocate for yourself. Nobody yeah. is going to do that for you. And so when my 10-year-old mm-hmm. comes home and says, my teacher did this, and I got blamed for this, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to call or write an email. You need to go to the teacher, and you need to have that discussion. And long story short, my kid you know, says, guess what? I, moved my, I got moved to the front of the classroom where I can now hear everything and get the noisy kids out of my way. And I'm like, great. You have to be assertive if you want to get somewhere, my friend. So th- it works with the kids and definitely, you know, t- to our engineering brothers and sisters, it works as adults. It does. You know, I read, you, you read, you read about on audio forums about people, you know, someone or on Facebook, I'll see someone. Yeah, I got a call from someone's parent asking for a gig at my studio. And it's like, man, you're never going to get a gig like that. You can't have your parents call for you. You got to call. Yeah. You got to go in there. You got to do it. You're 100% right. It's good that you teach your kid that at 10. I'm not sure I taught my kid that early enough. You got to advocate for yourself. You're 100% right on that. I mean, maybe it emanates from an East Coast thing, but I'm not from the East Coast. And I just, I know that I've gotten the places I've gotten because I've spoken up and said, actually, you know, and that's, I started in the sixth grade when they said, you have to play trumpet. And if anybody has a problem, raise your hand. And I raised my hand and they said, Yes. And I said, I, I don't want to play trumpet. Why not? Because I'm going to play the drums. And then, <laughs> and I got the drumming spot. So, <laughs> so much of life is about not being denied. You know, I, I call it uh, Jedi mind tricks or Obi Wan Kenobiing something. Obviously, everybody knows where I got that from. But uh, basically, if you are not to be denied, you are not to be denied. Yeah. Failure is not an option. If you believe that failure is not an option and you refuse to allow failure to be an option on any given thing, then failure will not happen. Yeah. I mean, you have control and uh, over the events that occur in your life or influence. You have influence. You don't have control. You have influence. I want to also just cap off this conversation by saying that it's not an entitlement mentality that a lot of people have. It's just stepping up and saying, this is what I would like to do. And I would like to do that, you know, record your record, mix your record. If you'll have me, I'm I'm here for you. Let's do it. Absolutely. So, I mean, you're selling them on, they're, they're going to spend 12 hours a day with you for, for a long period of time. You better be enjoyable to hang out with. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link get your 30% off and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Well, so you had some success here with some of these projects as your freelance career grew. At what point did the writing enter into your world? Yeah, so in 1999, in the very beginning of that year, I started recording... Ben Harper's uh, Burn to Shine album. It was his fourth album. It was the third album that I was working on him with. I had mixed the previous two, Fight for Your Mind and Will to Live. I had agreed to record this one. More than agreed, I actually wanted to record this one. We were recording at this studio called Alpha, which is no longer there. Hasn't been there for probably 20 years, 15 years maybe. My assistant was uh, this kid, Dan Schwartz. Nice guy. I think he's in San Diego these days. Oh, we're shooting this shit one day. He's telling me about this thing, Usenet. He's like, tell me about this place where people go on the internet and talk about audio. I'm like, what? People go on the internet and talk about audio? (laughs) He's, He's like, yeah. And so he introduces me to Usenet and to, uh, specifically to Rec Audio Pro. So now... There's probably a lot of people listening to this that may not know, really be familiar with Usenet, or maybe they know about it but haven't experienced it. But let me tell you something, and you obviously have, I can tell by your laugh. But Usenet was the wild, wild west of the internet because there were no moderators and there was no deleting anything that was posted. So you got into a fight, it was there forever. You posted spam, it was there. It didn't matter what you posted, 
it was staying there. I, I got to say, I much prefer that. <laughs> it's, it's a much more interesting way to interact with people. But so I started posting as Eric Serafin. I maybe made two, maybe three posts as Eric Serafin, and I got my ass handed to me. By, first, by Hank Ulrich, who used to hang out there all the time. He was a guitar player in Texas. Harvey Gerst used to hang out there, too. He was a recordist in Texas. And um, basically, I, I wasn't careful with my words when I was talking about 1176, and I called it a compressor. And I got hand my ass on how that was a limiter <laughs> and a leveling amplifier. And so I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. I am not going to put myself out here like this. And so I like came up with this name, Mixer Man. I'm like, ah, I'll be Mixer Man. So I took <laughs> Mixer Man. And that's my name. And so I start posting there as Mixer Man. And I, I decide, you know, I'm, I got to get people to notice me. <laughs> so <laughs> I started like going after people that were posting bullshit. It was just total crap. And I would go after them and I, I, you know, explain why it was crap. And I, you know, I dissed them and it was, you know, it was pretty rough, rough and tumble. And um, Fletcher used to hang out there. For the listener, Fletcher used to be the owner of a pro audio company called Mercenary Audio many, many years ago. Boston based, right? He was um, in Massachusetts, yeah. I think he was in um, near where the Patriots play. <sighs> Framingham, Farmingham. Anyway, so uh, so I made my bones there. And I, I kind of people started to, you know, I would say that I was a, an LA engineer and mixer, and I've worked on a, a bunch of known known records, and but I wouldn't tell anybody who I was. Uh, you know, my, my argument was it doesn't matter what I've worked on if you just read my words and try it, and you'll see that I'm right. And so I start people started to notice, and I started to reveal re reveal myself to to a few select people, including Fletcher. And in 2001, Fletcher says to me, you know. I'm I'm going I'm going to move to this uh, forum called Pro Sound Web, and uh, they're paying people to be moderators there. It's like it's not a lot of money, but it's a little money, and you're already posting all the time on rap. So I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll do it. I'll be a moderator on an audio recording forum, sure. And so I go there as Mixer Man, and for a year I posted on there trying to get people to participate, but people weren't ready to make that move from Usenet to the internet. The internet was a place where advertisements were and where, where posts were deleted because it was moderated. And so after a year of not really getting any headway with this forum, I decided that I wanted to do something to try and attract people. And so I had this idea where I would write this story, basically a diary, as an anonymous engineer on a bidding war project, an L.A. bidding war project with an infamous producer. I figured, okay, well, maybe this will attract some people. <laughs> and so I started writing this thing. This was called The Daily Adventures of Mixman. I titled it right from the start. I posted my first post saying I was going to start this project, explaining what, you know, giving the setup. And I posted the first day on a Monday, and I get this email from Fletcher, who's the band. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, there is no band. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, there is no band. So he starts posting everywhere, documentary, right? All over the place, gear sluts. Uh, the Velvet Rope, whatever, Harmony Central, if it was even there then, I'm not even sure. Whatever was around at the time. And he's posted, and Usenet. So by the, I had posted five entries, and all of a sudden people were starting to come. And whereas, you know, I would refresh, I'd see maybe one person would visit, you know, every hour. I was refreshing. Every time I hit refresh, five more people had read the post. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. That's five people every like five seconds. That's ridiculous. And then by the second week, more and more people are coming and it just keeps growing. And then people couldn't get on. By week four, someone had posted my entire week four on Usenet, which I couldn't remove. And that's when it really just went off the hook. Then I was getting 25,000 people a day coming to it. We had to remove move it off the forums onto the web because the site couldn't handle the traffic at the time. You know, bandwidth was a whole different animal back then. By the end of the story, this crazy story where I was basically taking 15 years of horror stories in the studio and, and compiling them into one session and presenting them as if it was a real session that was happening live. And I was reading online, people criticizing me, people commenting, people laughing, people tearing me down. It was 
it was really remarkable. And so that would be the start of my day, and then I'd write, and I could see where people were confused in the story. And it was like this interactive kind of reality thing that was going on between myself and the audience. It was like <laughs> reality Trump before he even knew what that was. Yeah. You know, you know, Trump says these outrageous things, and then he goes on and watches TV all day to see what, you know, how people react. It was kind of like that. And so... By the end of the, the, the story, I had 150,000 people coming every day to read it. And I sat on it a couple years, and then I put it out as a book myself a couple years later. And then Hal Leonard picked it up, and they contacted me in 2008, and they picked it up. And that was pretty much the start, was that story. And I wasn't really looking to be, go into writing at that time. I, I had a very good career in that, in that time, in the early aughts. I was working on all sorts of, recording all sorts of big bands. I recorded Lifehouse, Nine Days, Bare Naked Ladies, the two years after, after I wrote that story. By the end of that decade, after The Daily Adventures of Mixer Man came out on Hal Leonard, I figured it was time to write a book about mixing. So I sent my publisher a note, and I had a conversation with him, and I pitched him on this book, Zen and the Art of Mixing. Which I'm holding in my hand. Yes, you are. And I wrote that in 2010. It's a great book. And in my copy, pages are uh, highlighted in yellow, green, and orange, whatever color highlighter was available in front of me at the nice. time. And uh, yeah, I've, I've had this for some time, and I find, it, I find it now, and I found it then very valuable. I, I go back to it and read the highlighted parts. Nice. I'll put a link I appreciate to it. that. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, because for my audience, it's, it's been great for me. Yeah, that, yeah. I appreciate that. It's uh, it's an interesting book because I wrote it freeform, but I mean, I'm not saying it's not structured. It is structured, but it's very um, stream of consciousness. Yeah. Basically, I'm hitting upon at that time 20, 20 years of of mixing, um, and I'm hitting upon you know aha moments that that occur throughout that process, that learning process, and so. If you pick up that book and you're in the, in the right place, you're going to pick up things immediately from it. But there's other things that, that people aren't going to be ready for. You got to get to a certain place. And then all of a sudden, those things light up for you. And so over time, you start to, start to be able to go back to the book and, and draw from things that you're ready for as you advance. There's no getting around the practice part of it, you know? I want to ask you about the, the Chronicles of Mixer Man. That whole experience, what did that teach you about audio people's personalities and, and I mean, you experienced a range of praise and anger and people spitting out their two cents over a story that you ultimately were making up. And I'm curious what, what your takeaway from all of that writing was and hearing these people and their feedback. That people are easy to rile up. No doubt. <laughs> <That's> pretty... <laughs> I, I tell you, man, I watched Trump. I've been watching Trump since 2015 when he first start, jumped in the race. And I'm not making any comments about him. You can like him. You can hate him. I don't care. This is not what I'm talking about here. But I watched him, and, and he is a super effective troll. And basically, when I wrote that book, I was trolling the entire industry. And so I learned pretty much how, how to be an effective troll at that time. And maybe Donald Trump learned it too. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, of course. <laughs> I'm sure it was an interesting exercise. And did you feel a sense that the Mixer Man persona was your firewall to protect your, your, your reputation? Or did you care? Oh, I, I cared a little bit. I mean, for a long time, I, I tried to keep myself... I tried to keep Mixer Man separated from my professional name of Eric Serafin for as long as possible, way longer than I, I probably should have or could have. And, you know, the, 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 the word was out by probably 03, 04, and, and I really didn't even come out until 08 when it just became untenable because people were basically dropping who I was everywhere. And so I was scared to death to reveal who I was. But not necessarily because I thought I wouldn't work again. I mean, maybe, maybe that could have been a problem in 02 when I was writing it, except that the session never really happened. <laughs> so, you know, you can't really say that I, I broke the trust of a session when the session didn't happen. Right. But I was trying to maintain that illusion that it was a real session and that mm -hmm. people just didn't know. And, you know, so it was a little <laughs> difficult. But uh, I, once I finally did reveal it, 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 
it was kind of a relief. It was much better. It's much better to be Mixer Man and Eric Seraphim. <laughs> Uh, now you have a new book out. It's called Musician's Survival Guide to a Killer Record. And uh, I, I appreciate you sent me an advanced copy, and I apologize for not reading it in advance. Oh, it's all good. But, but looking, basically, you know, cheating a little bit here and looking through the table of contents, it seems like you're giving the musician kind of a, um, a heads up as to the inner workings of audio to educate themselves. Is that accurate? The basic premise of the book is I've been going on in the audio forums. I've always gone on to audio forums, and I go on a lot of them on Facebook, the DIY, the home recording ones. You name it, I go to it, and I read them. And sometimes I get involved and sometimes I don't. But I read it, and I just read comments. I read questions that, you know, that are misguided. And then I read 125 comments to the question that are equally as misguided. And I start to look at it and I realize that these forums that used to be populated by people that were interested in becoming recording engineers are now populated by people that are musicians that need to record themselves by default. And so that's an entirely different population because if you're going to try and become a recording engineer, you're working for someone and there's a whole thing of professionalism that goes with it and you need to learn you know, you really need to dive in deep into the different kinds of techniques that you can use. And, and so, but for a musician, they need to be good at playing music. They need to be good at playing their instrument, at performing, at writing. So how are you developing that? And at the same time, taking the three years or four years that it takes to develop your recording chops, you can't do it. So one of the things that I noticed as a producer who also recorded which I did for several years, I avoid it now, is that as a producer, my headspace was completely the opposite as the headspace of a recordist. So if I was listening to the sound, I was listening as a recordist. And if I was listening to the performance, I was listening as a producer. That's an oversimplification, but you cannot operate as both at the same time. So that means at all times, one is suffering. So I kind of had to develop this system where I simplified the recording as much as possible so that I could focus on what was most important, which was dealing with my artists and my band and my performances and my arrangements and making the record from that perspective and just making the recording a, a simplified process, right? And so I realized after reading, uh, you know, spending the past year reading all these musicians that are confused about the technical process and, and all the technical aspects and are trying to become recordists when they really shouldn't become recordists, I realized that musicians need a book that explains all of this stuff so that they can simplify the recording process as much as possible so that they can focus on the performance and the arrangement and the song. And so... I go through, I spend a lot of time talking about arrangement and frequency and thinking along those lines. Because if you think along the lines of frequency as you build your arrangement, then the mix process becomes far easier down the line. In fact, if you build your production with intent from start to finish, you don't even really need a mix process. Uh, maybe you spend an hour or two, you know, dialing it in a little bit. That's all good. Mm -hmm. But you shouldn't have to, like, tear it all down and start from scratch and build it back up as like we used to do when, when the mix process was a separate process. Now, wherever I'm at, I'm saved, right? So why am I going to make a mix process? Why am I not mixing it at all times as I'm making it? And so I've put together this system where you build your arrangement with intent and I explain the things that you're thinking about uh, with, with musical function. A lot of this stuff comes from um, Zen and the Art of Mixing, you know, the musical functions and frequency and, and, and arrangement. And then I go through all of the basics of recording, all the different microphones, all the compressors, and I explain how to strategize what you're going to record with and how you're going to record based on what you have. So, you know, if you decide you want to make a Metallica record and you're recording in a spare bedroom, your drums, well, you, you're not going to be happy and it, it ain't going to sound like a Metallica record. There's certain things that require space. And so I, I really address the realities 
of recording and try and direct musicians to think creatively based on their current environment and their current gear. And I give them enough information. I break down all the technical information of the course so that they can make good decisions based on what they have available. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you you really go into, like, when you said compressors, I mean, you, you go into, you know, VCA, FET, valve tube, and optical, and you break down all of the, you know, attack ratio and all that. But then you also go into uh, distortion. You really, really break this down. I, I'm fascinated. There's a particular client I have in mind that I, uh, I think I'm going to buy a copy of the book for him because I think he would benefit greatly from this. I think that a lot of engineers and producers are going to realize that this book can benefit a lot of their clients greatly. And I think that it makes our lives easier when we work. I know for me, it makes my life easier when I'm working with a client who understands the process and who's been through the process. You know, I wanted to write a book that, that didn't like, I'm not suggesting that you don't need an engineer, but I, I am suggesting that there are times that you're not going to have an engineer available. And you need to be able to record. And you need to be able to record well. But you don't need to learn how to be a recordist. You need to learn how to be an artist. And if you learn how to be an artist and you focus on your musicianship and you focus on your performance, then all the other stuff, the sound, all that stuff falls in place on its own. Well, I think also educating our clients about the process directly benefits us as as audio professionals making records. So agreed. I will put a link in the show notes for the listeners to uh, to buy themselves a copy or buy their their musician clients a copy if they decide to do so. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Well, we're almost out of time, but I want to I want to go back to Los Angeles for a bit and then go over to uh, North Carolina. In your time in Los Angeles, living day to day and and surviving, you had hinted that, you know, it became a lot easier because you were making more money. What about the work-life balance for you at that time? Was that a challenge? Were you working 7 days a week? Did you take time off? How did you deal with that? Yeah, it was a big challenge. Work-life balance was extremely difficult throughout that throughout the 90s and the and the aughts because I would frequently get on projects where I was working 12 hours a day, six days a week, and I would just be shattered on Sunday. I mean, I couldn't do anything on Sunday. And so my son was born in 1996. So, you know, it's it's pretty exhausting to work those kinds of hours with that kind of level of concentration. You know, using your brain is just as exhausting as using your body. Your brain is your body. Yeah. And um, uh, so I struggled a lot with work-life balance. It's a lot easier now. My son's grown up, and uh, but I, I, I don't work 12-hour days anymore. I mean, I, I kind of do, but I don't work 12-hour days in the studio so much anymore. I'm more inclined to mix. If I have uh, uh, things to mix, I'm more inclined to do a mix a day, not really try and bust out two mixes a day, which is what I did routinely for years. Because I don't have to pay for a studio, you know? Back then, you had a budget. If I wanted to make my money, I had to do them quick. Besides, I had better results when I mixed quick. I mean, I recommended in, in Zen in the Art of Mixing to mix quick because it didn't give me an opportunity to overthink things. And um, so now I, I'm a lot better about it. And, and it's 
I'll work on more than one thing at one time. I'll have, a, you know, multiple projects of different kinds going on at any given time. That's totally different. That's not easy for me, but it's kind of the way it is. And you've moved to North Carolina. Uh, what prompted that move? Well, I wasn't really doing a lot of work out of L.A. anymore. A lot of my work was just coming from all over the world. And L.A. was a very expensive place, still is. And my son had graduated high school, and he was talking about going to college. And he didn't do great in high school. Uh, he, had, he went through a divorce, among other things. And um, I had been coming to Asheville since 08 to record local acts that were reaching out to me from here. And I was going to the Studio Echo Mountain, which is a world-class facility. It's got an 8068 in one room and an API in the other. It's built in a church. It's a great sounding room, amazing sounding room. And so I was coming here and I was producing acts and then bringing them back and mixing them in LA. And um, I fell in love with this place. And so kind of all the planets aligned once again in my life where it was like, well, I really need to make some kind of a move here. And I asked my girl and I asked my son whether they wanted to move to Asheville and what they thought about that. And they were both open to it. So within a month and a half, we were on our way to Asheville. <laughs> and, um, and my son has flourished here. It was such, such a good move just for my son. And I view my, my job in regards to my son, I take it very seriously. And, you know, his mother's not so available. And so he lives with me still. And by, he's been going to... Um, the technical college here, it's a community college, and he gets straight A's. He's got a 4.0 there, and he's the president of the, of the Phi Lambda Kappa or whatever the, it's not a fraternity, it's, you know, it's a, it's a school um, uh, club, and it's a national club, and um, he's going to go to school in, uh, in Raleigh in a year, and he'll finally be out of the house and on his own. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I made a very good decision for him moving here. And, and I made a good decision for me moving here too. And my partner, it's just worked out really well. And I still get work and I'm my, my expenses are way less, which puts a lot less strain on me. You know, I mean, from 2008 to, to, to current in this business, you know, it's been a very difficult road for everybody. Yeah. For people in my position where profit sharing was a part of it, all of that has dried up. There's no royalties anymore. I mean, I get some, but they're, 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 nothing compared to what, what they should have been over this time period. And I basically stayed afloat by keeping my wits about me and, and diversifying and by selling expensive gear that I no longer needed. And, um, you know, it just made sense for me to come here and be a big fish in a small pond. I was hoping to try and attract national acts here. That really hasn't worked out very well, partly because I, I you know, I can't really, I'm having trouble getting the studio to buy into that concept. I don't really know why. Huh. This town, Asheville, the Consumers Visitors Bureau, uh, which collects the taxes from the hotels, from all the tourists, they invested millions in uh, a few years back to turn this into a foodtopia town, which w was a massive success. And then the past two years, they've been trying to do the same for music. And I met with them and I told them, you can go and I didn't spend as much money as you want advertising Asheville as a music destination but we don't have an infrastructure and you've got a lot of musicians that are barely able to eke out a living here, despite the fact that you have so many venues and so many opportunities. And I'm like, if you really, really want to make this a music town, then you should invest directly into the music. Oh, well, we can't do that. So all this money is going to outside agencies. And for what? These poor musicians that live here, there's there's a super high per capita musicians. They're, you know, making 50 bucks a night plus tips to play. Hmm. And it's, it's just, it's ridiculous. And so, you know, the ones that do well are the ones that go out on tour and the ones that, that play in bands that go out on tour. And, uh, you know, Asheville is just their home destination. If you just live here and you play, that's, you can make a living, but it's a, you know, it's a tough living and you got to diversify as well. That's just the way it is now. You mentioned diversification for yourself. Obviously, the books are part of that. Do you do other diversification in terms of audio work? No, I pretty much produce and mix and stick to my strengths there. It's the it's the writing that's been my diversification and, and videos and stuff. And 
I'm able to maintain a career currently and have been, but I'm just not able to really get ahead anymore. And it's like, I kind of need to keep going at getting ahead. I really couldn't afford to have 10 years where I didn't get ahead, you know? But the divorce doesn't help either. So, you know, right. it is what it is. Ultimately, I'm super happy being creative. So if I'm writing a book or if I'm making a record, I'm happy. You know, it's fulfilling for me either way. So for me, books are a growth industry. You know, I've got opportunities are coming up. Amazon makes it so I could self-publish now. So instead of getting a, a little bit of money for each book sold, I get a little bit more than a little bit of money for each book sold. But at least I own my product now. And I'm going to own Zen in the Art of Mixing shortly, and I'm going to own Zen in the Art of Producing shortly too. And I've got plans for those products. And, you know, unless there's a major turnaround in music, you know, I have to keep my eye forward here. I'm not saying that I'm out of music. I work all the time in music. So don't think that, don't, don't anyone think that. But, you know, I, I, I have to recognize that that's going to end at some point. So I, I need to make sure that I put myself in a position where I can carry forward. You did mention that you sold off a bunch of expensive gear that you just don't need anymore. Sounds like you uh, pared it down to what you need. Well, what am I competing against? You know, I mean, if I was competing against a bunch of studios that had a ton of analog gear, then maybe I maybe it would make sense for me to have have that. I do have my summing boxes, so I do have analog gear and I do have analog compressors and stuff. But you know, the the between '08 and now, the Logic and DAWs in general have just come miles ahead and conversion. Like conversion was actually still an issue in 2010. It's it's just not an issue anymore. Whatever. Get an interface. You're fine. You know, there's all sorts of things that were issues that just are not issues anymore. And especially when you start to, to bring in the reality, which is there's not a lot of money. So if there's not a lot of money anymore, why am I going to spend $6,000 on an EQ? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it doesn't make any sense. The economics just don't make any sense anymore for, for me to operate that way. And as a mixer, I can have a small footprint. I can be in one room. And I only need a set of monitors and a mixing. My, my, I have the Slate MTX and, you know, and, and the summing boxes. But, uh, and then when I want to produce, I'm going to a studio anyway. So I go to the studios around here. There's lots of them. And they have the, the infrastructure you need to do that work. So The place has the infrastructure, which is why it was acceptable for me to move here, which is why it made sense for me to move here. Between the, between the personnel and all the studios, I have everything that I need to record anything here. Well, so uh, for the uninitiated to Mixer Man, uh, where can people find out more about you if they're not aware of who you are? Well, I would say go to Mixerman.net. Uh, my blog is called... Uh, Mixer Man's Word, and that's at mixerman.net slash word. I would say frequent that. And I hang out a lot on Facebook. I have my Mixer Man page, and I have a Facebook group called Mixer Mania. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me everywhere, all the social media sites. And um, I think the best way to get to know me is buy my books. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, once again, I'll include links to not only uh, Zen and the Art of Mixing, but the other books as well in the show notes. So uh, please visit workingclassaudio.com so you can click on those links and follow them through to uh, Eric's books, which this Zen in the Art of Mixing, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's, it's really fantastic. So Eric, thank you again for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This is a great show, by the way, Matt. Thank you. It's really good. All right. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Mixer Man. Eric Serafin here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. And we have to thank the crew that would include Mr. Cliff Truesdell and Mr. Chuck Smith for the music and the voice, yes. 
And of course, want to thank you once again for coming back each week and spread the word, tell all your friends. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.